together. Thanks for listening to the KC Morning Show. January 11, 1970, victory belonged to Hank Stram and his Kansas City Chiefs. TV9 News special report, close up the flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Citians must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riots? I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. <laughs> professor Harvey K, my brother, how are you doing, sir? He is a professor emeritus over at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay, and we were talking about this off air. You know, this will probably be our, our last chance to, to banter football. It's become a staple that right before we take back America, which we do Every Tuesday here on your KC Morning Show, we like to like to kick things off lightheartedly. And well, our teams, they all sh their bed. So what we've got here are two teams that we're not super interested in. It's not so much Cincinnati I want to win. It's just, you know, I like Joe Burrow because he's an LSU guy. But I was thinking as you were just talking, I thought, wow, what if we did a science fiction or fantasy episode where we imagined our teams did confront each other <laughs> in the Super Bowl? That's what the folks want to see, Professor K. They want to see you playing a video game. They want you on an Xbox, and you represent the <laughs> Packers. I'll play with Mahomes and the Chiefs. Broadcast that live, brother. That's our Super Bowl. <laughs> oh, yeah. How are you, my friend? Are things well in Green Bay? What's the word in dear sweet Wisconsin? It went terribly quiet after we lost that playoff game. Really went terribly quiet. I have to say that I'm now entering the moment. A day is coming soon where I will not be turning on my sports guys in the morning. Or maybe when the draft is warming up, I'll do it. I was going to say, I can't believe that you haven't turned it off yet. I, I turned mine off two weeks ago. <laughs> I couldn't well, handle it. There's still talk in Green Bay. And it's kind of fun to hear them talk about coaching changes. And also, Green Bay is definitely going to go through some big changes. A lot of, lot of free agents on our team. And they can't afford to keep everyone. So, you know, it's that kind of talk. And also... The banter on the show that they do is it's kind of cute sometimes. And I tweet them every morning and I love to hear my little digs get read on the air. See, I feel like you're you're a lot like me, Professor K. We we still kind of like radio. We still kind of love radio. Something about the storytelling. You're a writer. You know this. It's about, you know, painting that picture, hanging out with your buddy riding shotgun, even though you have no idea who they are. You don't know what they look like. But for some reason, you're going to let them in your car with you. It's just, I don't know. I, I'm a nerd for that stuff. If I saw you hitching on I-70, I'd pick you up. Professor K. And probably get a ticket for doing so. <laughs> I forget now, Professor K. This is what, FDR week six? I bet it is. And I think we can both agree that as far as those pillar speeches of FDR, this one we're going to talk about today, it's it's one of them, right? Like this has got to be one on that list of FDR's greatest hits when we buy that album. <laughs> if this isn't in the top three of, of our imaginations and our memories, then we're in trouble. And I want to say that we've been pulling a lot of material from my book, FDR on democracy, because we've been doing all these speeches. And today we will do that as well. But the story itself that we're going to offer, and in fact, the lines that I'll read will come directly from a book that I really, really, really enjoyed doing, The Fight for the Four Freedoms, 
what made FDR and the greatest generation truly great came out in uh, 2014. You could say this was my, the love letter that I wrote to my parents' generation. And to be more precise, it's a book in which I really do show the degree to which FDR and the greatest generation in all their diversity, especially the working people of that generation, truly were the most progressive generation in American history. They were the ones who in the 30s fought the Great Depression, but not only fought the Great Depression, they, as we especially went over in the 1940s speech that we did last week with FDR, campaign speech in Cleveland in 1940, they were the ones who created Social Security. They're the ones who created the National Labor Relations Act. They're the ones who set the minimum wage, set the Fair Labor Standards Act, fought the Dust Bowl of the 30s, built the Tennessee Valley group of dams and factories and all of that, literally brought people out of poverty and, and began by way of the FDR court appointed in the late 30s, began to move in favor of civil rights, which would emerge all the more effectively in the 50s and especially in the 60s. And that was a remarkable generation. But we're going to deal specifically with that moment in 1941, the Four Freedoms speech. Now, we've kind of dealt with it a, a, a bit before, but I want to start with a couple of passages from the book, The Fight for the Four Freedoms. It's going to be the evening that the speech is finalized. So here we go. The 1941 annual message to Congress, what we know of as the State of the Union Address, went through seven drafts before Roosevelt felt it was ready for delivery. As his chief of staff, Samuel Rosenman, later recounted, quote, the president himself had dictated five pages and worked on it very hard through the various drafts, filling each of them with his handwritten corrections and insertions. Now back to my own words. The four freedoms had been taking shape in FDR's mind for some time. He had spoken of them in various ways for a number of years, but not until the writing of the fourth draft did he state them precisely. Rosenman clearly recollected that moment. It was the night of January 1st. The speechwriting team of Harry Hopkins, who was fundamental to the entire Roosevelt administration through the New Deal and the war years, Robert Sherwood, who was, a, I believe, a Pulitzer Prize winning playwright, famous in his day, and Rosenman himself, who was a, a lawyer and a judge who had been brought on by FDR as his chief of staff, along with the White House Secretary, Dorothy Brady. So they were sitting with the president in his study, going over the third rendition of the address when... Just as they neared the end of it, Roosevelt exclaimed that he had, in quotes, an idea for a peroration. Now, a peroration really is, those are the words that are at the heart of the speech, the words that may well be the remembered words of the speech, and in this case, were decidedly remembered. Anyhow, Roosevelt says, quote, after a long pause, so long it began to feel uncomfortable. I'm sure we all know what that's like, and we remember those long pauses where somebody's not answering. The president said, Dorothy, take a law. And then he proceeded to dictate this, quote, we must look forward to a world based on four essential human freedoms. And we'll return to those words later. Indeed, Rosenman said, quote, the words seem now to roll off his tongue as though he had rehearsed them many times to himself. And I want to make it clear that at this moment, at this moment, there had already been for some time discussion of something like the idea of the four freedoms, of something like what will later be called the Economic Bill of Rights. Major public figures had made speeches almost projecting the possibility 
of expanding American freedoms in economic and a social direction to guarantee them, number one. Number two, it's important to note that FDR's National Resources Planning Board, which he had created some years earlier, they had already begun to draft reports as to how the United States might not only fully beat the Great Depression, but might go forward to real economic and social development. And there they began to propose ideas similar to the Four Freedoms and the Economic Bill of Rights. But the other thing I want to say is that Eleanor Roosevelt herself had already been out on a kind of campaign, or at least put it this way, she was giving speeches all around the country. And among those speeches, quite a few were to Black organizations, especially to Black women's organizations. And in those speeches, she called for the recognition of what she called the four equalities. This would have been in sort of 1940 when she was giving these speeches. So this is before Roosevelt ever speaks specifically of the four freedoms. And what she says is this. Listen carefully. This is really important stuff, she says. Equality before the law, equality of education, equality of opportunity to earn a living, equality to express oneself and participate in government. She offered this speech around the same time that she brought out a book, a small book, which we may have mentioned on a previous show. If we haven't, I'm going to mention it now, The Moral Basis of Democracy, which is her discussion of America's idea of democracy, which is yet unfulfilled, obviously unfulfilled in the South, not only rural Black Americans, but rural Black whites were essentially left out of the voting rolls because of the literacy requirement or the poll tax, or in the case of African Americans in particular, because of the thuggery of the regimes down there that would have literally beat the shit out of a black man or woman who approached the polls, especially in a rural area. Eleanor Roosevelt was very, very active in a host of progressive movements at the time, not only labor, not only youth movement, but also decidedly the civil rights movement. She was an early leading white figure as first lady. Anyhow, so she had these four equalities as part of her repertoire of words as she traveled. Now, FDR in 1940 obviously had good reason to worry about the wars underway in Europe and the wars underway in East Asia. The Nazis and the fascists, that is the Germans and the Italians, especially by way of the German army, had literally been overrunning the European continent. France fell. Russia was under siege. Britain itself was experiencing the Blitz. He began to worry in particular about Britain. Britain was running out of money to sustain the war effort. FDR decided the time had come for the United States essentially to enter the war without entering the war. And in December of 1940, in this fireside chat, which in many ways is one of the most important he'll ever give, he calls on Americans to join in turning the United States into an arsenal of democracy, to turn it into the great arsenal of democracy, to begin not only to equip the United States itself, with the armaments and the materials needed to withstand the possibility of a fascist attack on the United States, but also to provide Britain with materials it would need, what later would come to be called the Lend-Lease Program. Well, he had just won in November of 1940 an unprecedented third term as president. So he knew he would be the president for the next few years, and he knew he would essentially become, he knew it, a wartime president. The war itself would not come to the United States directly, 
blatantly until December 7th, 1941, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. But in the meantime, he was worried, not just about the possibility of a Japanese attack in the Pacific, but also of a German attack in the Atlantic. I mean, Germany was very, very active in the Atlantic, taking out British and allied shipping. He knew, FDR, that there were plans by Hitler, not simply to conquer North Africa for the sake of the oil to be had there, but also to gain access to West Africa as a jumping off point to, to attack the Americas, starting perhaps by way of Brazil or Northern South America, and then literally come up under, you know, underneath. In fact, it's worth noting that John Steinbeck, when he was doing some film work down in Mexico in 1940, became seriously worried that the Germans were flooding Mexico with certain kinds of money. They used to say, soften the underbelly. And by the way, Steinbeck actually went to Washington to tell FDR exactly what he was worried about. He'd later become a war journalist, Steinbeck, the great novelist. And I was telling you off air, Hartzell, that uh, when I was doing my research at the FDR library up in Hyde Park, New York, Actually, I'll tell you this right now. This is a historian's tale. The very first time I worked there, I was eager to see the drafts of the Four Freedoms and being in the library and requesting documents and holding these documents in my hand. And I made it a point. This sounds gross, perhaps. I rubbed my hand across the full page in case there was any residue or DNA or whatever <laughs> left from the days of FDR and his new dealers. You are a super fan. We call you a super fan in the business yeah, now. <laughs> yeah. So let's go to the other FDR on democracy book and let's have a look at that speech. Why don't you open up with an introduction? Only one week after his arsenal of democracy fireside chat, Roosevelt delivered his 1941 annual message to Congress. Speaking again of the Nazi and fascist threat, he made it clear that the dictatorships would likely attack the United States itself. But notably, as much as he urged turning the economy into the arsenal of democracy, he also insisted that doing so did not mean the country should suspend or give up the advances of the New Deal, which many a Republican was demanding. Indeed, he insisted that a strong defense required pursuing the programs of economic and social reform all the more aggressively. Finally, with America's own historic promise in mind, he offered a vision a promise of a post-war world founded upon the four freedoms, freedom of speech and expression, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear, which would become the theme of America's ensuing war effort. Here in the speech, it's worth looking at some of these words. I, I wasn't going to do it, but I'm all the more convinced we should include these words of his where he's letting people know that as much as we have to make certain kinds of sacrifices in face of the emergency we faced. And in order to support Britain, we as the great arsenal of democracy, he says, a free nation has the right to expect full cooperation from all groups. A free nation has the right to look to the leaders of business, of labor, and of agriculture to take the lead in stimulating effort, not among other groups, but within their own groups. The best way of dealing with the few slackers or troublemakers in our midst is first to shame them by patriotic example. And if that fails, to use the sovereignty of government to save government. As men do not live by bread alone, they do not fight by armaments alone. Those who man our defenses, those behind them who build our defenses, must have the stamina and the courage which come from unshakable belief in the manner of life which they are defending. 
The mighty action that we are calling for cannot be based on a disregard of all things worth fighting for. The nation takes great satisfaction and much strength from the things which have been done to make its people conscious of their individual stake in the preservation of democratic life in America. Those things have toughened the fiber of our people, have renewed their faith and strengthened their devotion to the institutions we make ready to protect. Certainly, this is no time for any of us to stop thinking about the social and economic problems, which are the root cause of the social revolution, which is today a supreme factor in the world. But there's nothing mysterious about the foundations of a healthy and strong democracy. The basic things expected by our people of their political and economic systems are simple. They are equality of opportunity for youth and for others, jobs for those who can work, security for those who need it, the ending of special privilege for the few, the preservation of civil liberties for all, the enjoyment of the fruits of scientific progress in a wider and constantly rising standard of living. I want to sidebar right here and say, FDR was fully aware of the denial of civil rights and civil liberties to all too many blacks in the South, and for that matter, even to the white rural poor. One of the reasons he, he gives this speech and it makes an effort of saying we will not give up the, str the, the struggles, the initiatives we've pursued in the New Deal is he wants to enable Americans who are without the full rights of citizenship because of their being denied those rights, that the struggle is not over. He's going to go on here. He's going to actually say that we should bring more citizens into Social Security and unemployment insurance. We noted the fact there were those who were left out, agricultural workers and household workers, especially African-Americans, because Southern white supremacists did not want to give way in any way that a view towards desegregation. But he's saying we need to bring more citizens. He's, he's already re renewing that promise to make Social Security work for all. He says we should widen the opportunities for adequate medical care. He had to give up health care as part of Social Security to get it through. Now he's saying, once again, we should widen that. And he says, we should plan a better system by which persons deserving or needing gainful employment may obtain it. And he says, I have called for the personal sacrifice. I am assured of the willingness of almost all Americans to respond to that call. Again, a sidebar. Everyone was listening in this country. They knew this was a major address. They may not have thought about it exactly at the time, but this in many ways was the call to arms. Even if we're not about to enter the war directly ourselves, we were essentially declaring our commitment to an allied cause. It was a signal to Japan and to Germany that we were not going to remain neutral, even though we were supposedly neutral. The other thing is this. The Americans who heard it included the likes of A. Philip Randolph. Have we talked about A. Philip Randolph and the March on Washington movement yet? We have not. Sounds like something we should be talking about. I know we will get to it, but I think it's important to note for when we do get to it, that it was when A. Philip Randolph, the head of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, the great labor and civil rights leader, literally when I say great, I'm not even saying the half of it. When he heard this speech, he got excited and decided it was time to launch the March on Washington movement. This seemed to him a promise, a promise that things were going to change radically. The point is, knowing FDR and the story of FDR, he knew it would have to involve a push to make it happen. And everyone should remember this. This is the beginnings in, in Randolph's mind of the March on Washington movement, which we will talk about when we take up a Philip Randolph. So here we go. FDR. This is the visionary part. This is the peroration. In the future days, which we seek to make secure, we look forward to a world founded upon four essential human freedoms. The first 
is freedom of speech and expression everywhere in the world. That must have shaken people up because they probably imagined he was going to talk about the four freedoms for Americans. But he was now going global with this vision of what a post-war world might entail. The first is freedom of speech and expression everywhere in the world. The second is freedom of every person to worship God in his own way everywhere in the world. And African-Americans believed that this was the promise that the future would no longer involve Jim Crow segregated South. This was in their minds, inspired action. Third is freedom from want, which translated into world terms means economic understandings, which will secure to every nation a healthy peacetime life for its inhabitants everywhere in the world. Now, I'll tell you something. They didn't hear that part in some ways. The everywhere in the world, I want to repeat myself, really didn't register as fully as this being a promise to all Americans that these four freedoms were a promise to them that they themselves were making to themselves as well. And the fourth is freedom from fear, which translated into world terms means a worldwide reduction of armaments to such a point and in such a thorough fashion that no nation will be in a position to commit an act of physical aggression against any neighbor anywhere in the world. Those are the four freedoms, freedom of speech and expression, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. And Americans took this seriously. A lot of people say they didn't take it seriously because there were studies done that Americans could not recite the four freedoms during those years. But when could Americans ever recite anything? I mean, I'm, I'm not knocking Americans. It, it becomes part of our sort of everyday understanding. How many Americans could tell you the first amendments for liberties? Well, I'm curious, do you think this is not so much of it didn't resonate with folks? Is it more of a maybe this was intentionally suppressed? Well, I think for many years after the war, there were serious efforts by Republicans and business people to suppress. I tell that story in my book, in fact. But at this time, I think it's because Americans just don't do well on quizzes. <laughs> That's okay. The point is, that didn't mean they didn't necessarily respond to it and make it part of their thinking. And by the way, it really did become a significant set of ideas. Norman Rockwell painted the Four Freedoms paintings. Those became famous. So famous, the federal government launched war bonds drive to raise monies during the war. And in 1943, they sent those paintings across the country. Celebrities turned out in each of the cities and it became a massive, a massive enterprise. One thing I want to make clear is I think we need to see these, this four frame speech alongside of the Gettysburg Address as a reaffirmation of the meaning of freedom and a promise of its enhancement in the future. He goes on, he says, that is no vision of a distant millennium, those four freedoms. It is a definite basis for a kind of world attainable in our own time and generation. That kind of world is the very antithesis of the so-called new order of tyranny, which the dictators seek to create with the crash of a bomb. To that new order, we oppose the greater conception, the moral order. A good society is able to face schemes of world domination and foreign revolutions alike without fear. Since the beginning of our American history, we have been engaged in change, in perpetual peaceful revolution. Obviously, it wasn't perpetual and peaceful. Let's be honest about it. We had a civil war. But what he's trying to get the Americans to realize is that democracy doesn't stop. Freedom doesn't stop. It's the matter that, that the American promise compels us, inspires us, encourages us, pushes us. That's what he's saying. A revolution which goes on steadily, quietly adjusting itself to changing conditions without the concentration camp or the quicklime in the ditch. The world order which we seek is the cooperation of free countries working together in a friendly, civilized society. 
This nation has placed its destiny in the hands and heads and hearts of its millions of free men and women and its faith in freedom under the guidance of God. Freedom means the supremacy of human rights everywhere. Our support goes to those who struggle to gain those rights or keep them. Our strength is our unity of purpose. To that high concept, there can be no end save victory. He is essentially declaring war on fascism. But he's also, this is interesting, journalists and Eleanor Roosevelt, who were present at the delivery of the speech, said that at various times in the speech, there were certain groups of House and Senate members who sat on their hands. Republicans generally sat on their hands. There were times where the Southern Democrats sat on their hands because they knew that this would inspire what we actually just referred to, the likes of A. Philip Randolph, to launch the idea of a March on Washington movement to demand greater African-American participation in the defense industries and possibly in the military. This speech is really, it's, to my mind, it's like the Gettysburg Address. But this is a speech which offers a vision and a promise. If any of you do pick up my book, The Fight for the Four Freedoms, I detail the degree to which Americans collectively and individually embraced the call to pursue the fight for the four freedoms. You talk about A. Philip Randolph. I mean, I'm curious. And of course, it's, you know, you can't speculate, but perhaps without this speech, there's no March on Washington. Well, and to, to make it clear to everyone where this goes, this is 1941, and he begins to develop the March on Washington movement, which becomes a very, very large movement within the Black community in the United States. There were preliminary, if you like, demonstrations and protests in cities around the country. A. Philip Randolph, who was the head of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Reporters, he commissioned all of his union members that as they travel the country, they should get out and make contact with local Black fraternities and sororities, with Black churchmen and others, in order to rally them to this idea of a march on Washington. We have time. Do we have time on this? We absolutely have time. Yeah, go. So A. Philip Randolph heard this speech. A lot of people were influenced to move. But he had made the decision to create a movement. He said that in July, it was a June, 10,000 African-Americans would march in Washington to demand a greater set of opportunities in the nation's developing defense industries, jobs, period, and to end the segregation of the military. That latter part he drops. It was the idea of getting African-Americans jobs, real jobs. Well, when FDR learned of this plan for a march, he was concerned because Washington, D.C. was a segregated city. Woodrow Wilson had ordered the segregation of the city. FDR was concerned that if blacks marched, that there would be violence, not on the part of the African-American community or the African-American marches, but on the part of white racists. So he, he asked Eleanor, and the, the two of them already knew Randolph. Randolph had been to the White House, but he asked Eleanor, who was particularly welcome in Randolph's presence, I'm sure, said, get him to call off the march the fear of violence. Well, I've always wondered what the two of them, Eleanor and Philip, A. Philip Randolph, might have actually said when they met. But she came back to the White House to say that he's not going to call off the march. I always imagine the two of them meeting and Eleanor saying, I know you're not going to call off the march, but I at least have to come and see you. And you get the idea, right? And FDR, two different versions of the story. One version is FDR was so proud of his schmoozing abilities that he could bring Randolph to the White House and basically talk him out of marching that he'd had that talent for persuasion. The other one was, I need to bring A. Philip Randolph to the White House because I need to show Congress that they're not withdrawing their projected march. But I can tell you this, Randolph came to the White House 
accompanied by at least one other major figure, and there might have been others, but the one I have in mind is Walter White, who was the head of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, known shorthandedly as NAACP. Keep in mind the number 10,000. They're sitting in the Oval Office, and FDR is doing his schmoozing best. And at a certain point, I guess he realized that he had to face the question, and he said, so you're planning on bringing a march to Washington? And they said, yes, we are. And the plan was only Blacks would be a part, would be a part of the march. This was going to be, if you like, collective self-liberation. And FDR said, how many men and women are you planning on bringing? And Randolph, without a beat, said 100,000. And FDR turns to White and says, what did I just hear? And White said, you heard the number 100,000. Well, that's when FDR kind of leans back and says, well, I guess we ought to do something. And he then proceeded to sign the executive order demanding the opening up of the defense industries to Black employment, And the second one, creating the Fair Employment Practice Commission that would actually oversee that the executive order was enforced. Keep in mind, an executive order is only effective so long as that president is in office and the ensuing president could literally lift it or bring it to an end. Now, it may not have afforded exactly the kind of jobs that Randolph might have hoped for, but quite a few of those jobs did come into existence. The bomber building industries, you know, tanks, guns, you name it, all of the weapons of war. And it's fascinating to me that FDR said these words meant to inspire us to, you know, to charge us up the power of the freedom. His own words were heard by someone else and used to push him even more left. I mean, that's just amazing to me that his own words ended up being taken from someone else. And then he had to act on that. And don't forget, we shouldn't confuse things. Randolph got the idea for the march from the speech. The march itself never took place. He actually did cancel the march. And don't forget that even though the march did not take place, in 1963, it did. It's that Randolph idea that Bayard Rustin took up the charge for to create the march on Washington, August 63. A march that also depended heavily and secured the support of Walter Ruther and the United Auto Workers, who helped provide the resources to enable many of those marches to get to Washington, D.C. by bus, train, and so on and so forth. That speech, in its own way, resonated through American history, even when it may not have been exactly recalled. And another important thing about this speech, especially as we are taking back America, we're trying to make this thing work and reclaim that radical history. As we were watching FDR's political growth, you know, at this point, what he's saying now, there's no there's no wiggle room. We know where he's at. This is, again, he wouldn't say it, but this is a social Democrat actively doing and talking about social democracy. And to go back to one of our early FDR ones, in 1932, people may recall, FDR gave a campaign speech in which he called for an economic declaration of rights. Now in 1941, here he is calling for Americans to pursue the making of the four freedoms, to make those four freedoms all the more real for all the more Americans. And then eventually, not next time, but the time after, probably we'll be getting to, or at least in the next few weeks, we'll be getting to the Economic Bill of Rights speech itself. We'll get to those here in the next couple of weeks. But Professor K, what do we got next week, brother? Well, you and I are going to be out of town. And it's not that I'm in Kansas City next week and you're in Green Bay. We'll be out of town. But in, what you're going to get, as I understand, is you're going to grab. Take hold of. Take hold of. You bet. We're going to take hold of a talk I gave at the National Archives in April 2004. 14, entitled The Fight for the Four Freedoms, when my book, The Fight for the Four Freedoms, was launched. That was an exciting day, and uh, that'll put all the things we've just said into a broader historical context. Okay, where can they find you on the internet? They can get me at HeartSoul965. Where can they get you on these internets? At Harvey 
Initial J K A Y E. Harvey J K. And one more time, let's plug this book. This was the first book I've I read from you, Professor K. To, to be honest, this was my introduction to Harvey K. Where can people go? Plug everything for the excellent okay, the read. The book is titled "The Fight for the Four Freedoms: What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great." It's in paperback. You can get it at a really good price. I'm not going to tell them where to get it, but I will tell them it's readily available if they go online and just plug it in. And by the way, do watch the Super Bowl. We're going to bring that back up. Ah. It's a good part. I'll be visiting my brother-in-law in D.C., my sister-in-law. They have a home theater, a big screen home theater. In, in that situation, you're just watching the show, Professor K, and it <laughs> happens to be football. Until next time, my brother, in solidarity, we're going to do this, taking back America. You got it. think we better listen to these kids. We can't keep pretending. We know what we're doing. I can't keep pretending. If you'll sit and listen, I'll tell you a secret Say you can do it.